Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us online at blessyouboys.com, also on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki, and uh, Rob, it's it's over, man. Baseball is officially over, and I, I was not prepared for it at all. Were you? Uh, what do we do now? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, it's weird because I, I say I wasn't prepared for it. Like, I, I knew it was coming. It's it's not like in previous years. You know, when the Tigers are actually in the postseason, you really don't know when it's going to end. It could be a, a three-and-out sweep in the ALDS. It could be sometime in the ALCS. It might be the World Series before they do a skunked-out sweep thing. And you just never know when the postseason is going to be over. This year, we knew. I mean, for me, it was like a cold exercise in calendar reading. You know, like, yeah, there's probably a week left of baseball but when it finally ended it's still like where is where's baseball what happened i don't know but it's dark and it's cold and i just i want spring again it's not cold here this whole week man it's crazy yeah it's, i know shut up okay it, i was trying to say <laughs> something poetic okay it's it's all poetic it's hard for it to be poetic though is what i'm saying because normally it really is cold and right now it's it's actually not in michigan it's like 70 degrees all this week so even the weather is not cooperating with, with our metaphors right now. So The weather is yeah. confused as we are. That's exactly right. All right. Let's get loaded up on cheap tobacco and even cheaper beer and get this episode rolling. We're going to be talking about some likely off-season targets for the Tigers, some unlikely off-season targets that would probably make us happy anyway, uh, the Kansas City Royals and whether they're actually for real, a status update on Daniel Nor- Norris and his uh, battle with cancer. We'll take some listener questions. We'll be joined by Meg Rowley of Lookout Landing later in the show to talk about the challenges of being a female sports writer in a male-dominated sports world. Before we do that, we got to talk about some news this past week that impacts the Tigers' pitching staff for 2016, and that is up next on our Rounding the Bases segment. 210-pound righty delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone! A home run! Ian Kinsler delivers the walk-off! Number six for Ian. He rounds third, heads into the mob scene at home, and the Tigers take the series from A.C. A walk-off home run from Kinsler, 8-6. to six. And so here we go, rounding the bases. We've got some changes, Rob, for the 2016 pitching staff. Probably the biggest news that came out this week was that the Tigers went ahead and hired uh, they hired a new pitching coach, but his last name is Doobie. Is that not awesome? I mean, it's not as great as Jim Bob Cooter running the Lions, but it's still pretty sweet. I mean, you got Doobie and Cooter now. <laughs> That's it. 2016 is, is going to be awesome. If we're going to go down, we're going to go down hilariously. 
That's absolutely right. Tell us a little bit about what you know about this uh, this new hire, Rich Doobie. I know he worked with the Phillies a little bit, but I think you probably have some more specifics on uh, you know some of the the actual pitchers that he did work with. Maybe a bit of his track record. Yeah, uh, Rich Doobie was the Phillies pitching coach uh, from. 2005 to 2013. He also worked with the Marlins for a few years uh, in the late 90s, just uh, kind of in between their two world championships in 1997-2003. Uh, um, but the bulk of his time was spent with the Phillies, where he worked with a number of guys. Um, I remember we had spoken before about him working with Randy Wolf. Uh, Wolf's lone all-star season did not come with Doobie, but he did work with uh, several other pitchers on that staff. Um, Cole Hamels, uh, can kind of have during his formative years being a big one. Uh, another guy I kind of picked out was J.A. Happ, uh, who had a few good years before he was traded and kind of fell into some doldrums with the Astros and, and Toronto Blue Jays for a little while. Um, and then you kind of wonder exactly how much impact Doobie had with a bullpen. Uh, but Brad Lidge, after, you know, uh, t- struggling mightily with the cup. Uh, with the Houston Astros for a couple years after Albert Pujols hit that bomb off of him in, I believe it was the 2005 uh, NLCS. Um, He kind of brought Lidge back to to prominence. Uh, He had an all-star season in 2008 when the Phillies won their World Series. Uh, Had a struggle a little bit in 2009, but then had another great season in 2010. and then was also, and then Doobie was also kind of presiding over the Phillies rotation when they had, you know, just that amazing team that won 102 games in 20, uh, I think it was 2011, um, before they bowed it in the first round of the playoffs. So it's safe to say it sounds like the, I mean, as far as pedigree goes, he's every bit as uh, pedigreed as Jeff Jones was, if not maybe a little bit more. Yeah, you definitely like to think so. Um, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, like the Roy Halladay's and Cliff Lee's of the world were already pretty good when they came under Doobie's uh, tutelage. Um, but, you know, yeah, I guess it's encouraging that they didn't, you know, fall off the face of the earth afterwards. Uh, you know, we, talk, we talked a lot about last time about what exactly a pitching coach does and doesn't do. Um, so, you know, you, you're kind of grasping for improvements here uh, along the way. But at the same time, it's tough to tell exactly what they, you know, who they helped improve and whatnot. Um, another guy that I, I kind of was looking at is Brett Myers, who had several good years with the Phillies there. He had a couple good years right as soon as uh, Doobie joined the staff and then kind of fell back to kind of his usual mold after that before he left for a couple other teams. Uh, so it's tough to say exactly what kind of impact he had there. Um, but, it, you know, you gotta you got to like what he's said so far. Yeah, it seems to me like probably the biggest, uh, you know, impact, I guess, or area of impact that they would have is really comes down for me to does, does the team like that coach? Can they work with that coach? Are they comfortable with him? And it, if I recall correctly, it seems like there was some talk about uh, Doobie and his connection with Randy Wolf, and Randy Wolf, in fact, beginning to work a little bit with some of the Tigers' younger pitchers like Daniel Norris or Matt Boyd. And that I, I think I had read that word had sort of leaked back through Randy Wolf to Brad Osmus, you know, that, that there was maybe a recommendation there. So uh, it's hard to kind of nail down how much of that's just rumor or accurate or whatever, but it, it sounds like a nice little pipeline of friendliness back to Doobie. It sounds like maybe the players, you know, if he comes recommended like that, um, especially by one of the players, then maybe there's a good chance that they all get along and and things work out. Yeah. I I think it's good that, you know, if this recommendation story is true, I think that's a good thing for the Tigers. I think it's especially good that a guy like Randy Wolf would recommend Doobie, you know, after only being with the Tigers for a couple of months, you know, he spent so many years elsewhere, 
you know, the you know, if Wolf really liked Doobie, he could have recommended he go somewhere else or whatnot. Uh, but I think it spoke to the speaks to the quality both of you know Doobie as a pitching coach as well as just kind of how Osmus connects with the players. I know it's something we've kind of glossed over at times um, that you know Wolf would kind of stick his neck out there and you know. Uh, offer up this recommendation to both parties is uh, you know kind of what seems like a you know a mutually beneficial relationship. Now there was some uh, you know I don't know what's the word I want here some uh, black stain of of sorts uh, you have to consider the source of course but it came from none other than Philly's uh, closer Mitch Williams who had a couple of not so nice things to say about Rich Dibby. I mean it's probably not even worth going into it because it's Mitch Williams right I mean can you really take anything he says seriously? Yeah, it's really tough to take Mitch Williams too seriously at this point, especially after all the the wacky things he said on uh, on MLB Network and and whatnot over the years. Um, I believe that Williams said something along the lines of that Doobie ruined Roy Halladay's career. Hmm. Um, you know, and it's really tough to buy something like that, even at face value. Um, you know, Halladay is a guy that had a lot of mileage on his arm when he finished up his career. Um, you know, his last couple years, he was 35 uh, when things really started to go downhill. He still made his last all-star team at age 34. Um, you know, had a 3.69 FIP at age 35 and then just kind of fell off the wagon after that. Uh, it seemed like he had some arm trouble uh, over his last couple years. And, you know, I, I really kind of struggle to pin that on the pitching coach when a guy has, you know, thrown uh, almost 3,000 career innings. Yeah, and I'm just looking over that uh, that article again that talks about Mitch Williams' uh, interactions and problems with Doobie, and it looks like it was all kind of over the fact that uh, Mitch Williams wanted to help out um, with some pitch coaching, basically, with Jake Diekman, and that apparently uh, Rich Doobie got, got in the way of that and didn't want that to happen. So, I mean, already it sounds like it's I mean just kind of a personal spat. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in any of that. Sounds like, um, other than that, you know, it, it, it looks sounds like a good move to me. I mean, are you okay with that 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 hire? I've got no problems with it. We'll see what happens. But I, I you know, if things go south in 2015, I mean, in 2016, I think there are several people that I'm going to blame far before I blame Rich Doobie. I am going to jump right on the blame Doobie bandwagon because that's that's what we do, right? You know, you you got to be a true fan and just start with the pitching coaches and then demand the firing of the manager and god i'm turning into that guy i, I mean i want osmus gone so i might as well go all the way and yeah we'll see. i think we can i think we can come up with a better hashtag though i mean there's got to be something more clever to go with doobie <laughs> than just fire doobie fire up a doobie <laughs> would be the natural progression i think man fire up a doobie chill the f- <clears throat> yeah in awesome news this week, Daniel Norris had his surgery on his thyroid and has uh, been proclaimed to be cancer-free. That is awesome, awesome news, and now we can kind of talk a little bit more about what that means for him going forward uh, and his contributions to the 2016 pitching staff. Yeah, it's great news to hear that everything went well with the surgery, uh, especially so quickly. Um, you know, that really kind of only came out about a week after the initial announcement. So it's encouraging to hear that everything went well. Um, you always hope that, you know, no complications arise and nothing creeps back in or anything like that. So we, you know, continue to hope that Daniel Norris stays healthy. Um, but as far as what to expect from him in 2016, you know, it sounds like everything's just kind of a green light and go from there. Uh, we haven't heard any news about, 
you know, any sort of off-season throwing program with him. Um, but, you know, with something like that, I almost think that, like, no news is good news and that it's just kind of, you know, okay, he took care of this. Now we go back to life as we were before type thing as long, you know, as provided he's still fully healthy there. So I'd expect him to be, you know, part of the rotation from day one and hopefully things go, uh, things continue like they did down the stretch for him. And yeah, it sounded like uh, the, the procedure was purely surgical. That I, I didn't catch anything in there about him needing to be on any sort of chemotherapy or radiation therapy, anything like that. It sounded like it was just you, you go under the knife and it's over and done. So I wouldn't expect that he'd have any, you know, sort of lingering uh, health issues, you know, weakness, that kind of thing that usually comes along with, you know, like chemotherapy treatments. Nope. Uh, you know, he posted the picture on Instagram again, um, just of him with his, uh, you know, surgical scar just kind of along the base of the neck there. So hopefully everything is, hopefully everything with him is uh, a-okay. It's awesome news. It's excellent. And I think we'll just kind of keep our eye on, you know, on the headlines here in, in weeks to come and see uh, when he is able to begin, you know, his off-season training regimen and begin throwing again and that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, speaking of uh, pitchers that have resumed pitching again, sounds like Shane Green is uh, is doing his thing again. Yep. Uh, it sounds like for Green, off-season surgery was a, was a success. Man, I can't talk today. Um, Green posted on Twitter, I believe, the, you know, the first day of throwing was a success with a little... Uh, with a little uh, biceps emoji or whatever you want to call it there. Um, so it sounds like things are going well with him. Um, you know, I'm kind of interested to see what exactly to expect from Green going forward. Um, you know, throughout a lot of the offseason talk we've had so far, it seems like Green has almost been kind of the forgotten pitcher. You know, they, people have mentioned Daniel Norris, Matt Boyd, uh, some of the other people like Buck Farmer and Kyle Obstein, but not many people have been mentioning Green, who was really kind of a you know key component of this rotation going heading into 2015, and even through his first few starts looked very good. And I know that you wrote a an article today, kind of questioning how much of Green's struggles in 2015 were related to the ulnar neuritis, the pseudoaneurysm in his arm and all the numbness he was feeling there. So it'll be interesting to see what exactly the Tigers have planned for him going forward. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. There's some confusion even in my own head about how this all fits together. Um, as I was researching uh, for that post that you mentioned, it was kind of the first time I'd heard, not maybe the first time I'd heard, but it jarred my memory that he'd had Tommy John surgery, I think when he was still in high school back in 2008. And so you start to see these things kind of stack up. The guy has Tommy John surgery at a rather young age. And then, lo and behold, he's having issues with the ulnar neuritis, um, which I remember when that news came out in May, I was, you know, initially like, oh, crap. You don't usually want to see the word ulnar, you know, as part of a diagnosis for a pitcher because usually that means, hey, season-ending Tommy John surgery. Um and then to have that kind of followed up with, no, it was it was a pseudoaneurysm. I'm not entirely sure, Rob, if, if those were two separate diagnoses or if the first one was incorrect and they finally corrected it by saying, no, it turns out it was this uh, aneurysm. But in either case, whatever the, the diagnosis was in May, whatever it was in August, the end result was the same because it was in both uh, May and August, the news reports were saying the guy is feeling numbness or not feeling, has no feeling in his... Uh, one report I saw said his uh, ring finger and pinky finger, and another report said middle and index. So I'm kind of going, well, crap. <laughs> I mean, t take out two, take out all four. If you can't feel your fingers, you can't grip the baseball. If you can't grip the baseball, you can't throw an effective sinker, slider, or really anything. 
Yeah, it's definitely got to be tough to you know throw the arsenal of pitches that Green has um, if he's having even any sort of numbness, tingling, just kind of a little bit of diminished feeling there. Doesn't have to be completely numb for him to really be impacted by that. So it'll be interesting to see how he does going forward. Um, kind of related to Green, uh, one thing that we had kind of poked around with the in, in the uh, in our little chat room today um, was Lynn Henning's article that the Tigers may consider Shane Green as for a bullpen role or the closer today. Uh, you putting any any stock into that, or or you think it's just uh, yeah, Lynn I... Henning being off season? <laughs> Lynn Henning. Lynn Henning says a lot of things that I'm not really sure what what he was just just finished smoking or is winding up to smoking at that point in time so yeah especially in the off season Lynn, Lynn tends to get a little bit bored and start talking about stuff and I wish he'd be a little more clear about you know saying hey this is just my opinion because I think that tweet said something like Tigers now considering you know Shane Green for bullpen I'm kind of no you mean they might be right you, you don't you didn't actually hear that from a Tigers source or anything like that you're just you know speculating but I honestly don't see that happening. I know they used him out of the pen a little bit towards the end of 2015. I think that was purely a you know rehab step and trying to kind of limit the the innings load on his arm. And I guess looking forward to 2016, you talk about it, Rob. I mean, I know you've said it a couple times on the site, and I've watched other commenters say the same thing. They're always like, "Oh yeah, Shane Green kind of forgot that he was even the thing." And uh, I mean, for me, he was a kind of a big deal, you know, in, in my mind, because he was to be Rick Porcello's placement and I, replacement, and I really liked Rick Porcello. So I, I've kind of had my eye on Green for a long time now, and very excited to see him come back in 2016. My concern, Rob, is the fact that he is a former Tommy John surgery recipient, and now we're talking about you know issues with the ulnar uh, nerve nerves around that area and this kind of thing. Um, my only big concern, maybe you can talk a little bit about the likelihood of this is that 2016 ends up seeing him needing a second round of Tommy John surgery. See, I'm not that concerned with something like that. Um, as far as ulnar neuritis goes, that is something that is, I don't want to say relatively common in players that have Tommy John surgery before, but I think it's more common than in those that have not had it. Um, during Tommy John surgery, oftentimes the ulnar nerve is displaced. It's moved a little bit because it's in the way uh, of the actual surgery. So they move it, Else, I don't know, somewhere else in the elbow. Uh, sorry, I can't be a little bit more specific on that, but they do move the nerve slightly, and that can lead to a little bit more, I don't want to say stress on the nerve, but it can lead to some weird sensations going on when guys are pitching um, You know, going forward. Uh, I don't think that there is necessarily any predictive power to you know having ulnar neuritis leading to a second Tommy John surgery. So I think that we kind of have to you know, take things at uh, just kind of at face value right now. And I think if anything, uh, the Tigers will want to make sure that, you know, Green has rehabbed his shoulder properly from, you know, the surgery he had in there uh, to make sure that he's not compensating at all in through the elbow and leading to more complications down the road. So you're not reading ulnar neuritis as predictive of, hey, it's starting to fall apart again. He's going to have to go back under the knife. No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I mean, that's good. That's good to hear because that was my only you know, concern when I was doing the research for that post and realizing, wait, he already went, <laughs> did the Tommy John thing. You'd hate to see that, uh, you know, become the story of 2016, just as we're all starting to get excited to see what he can do for this this coming year. But I have high hopes for him. I, like I said, I don't I don't think he's going to be your ace of the st- you know, pitching or staff or anything like that. But, you know, 
I also think uh, labeling him a number five is probably underestimating what he can really accomplish. So very much looking forward to a full and healthy 2016 for Shane Green. All right, so that is going to do it for our Rounding the Bases segment. When we get back from the break, we'll go into warming in the pen. And uh, really, that guy might be back in 2016. We'll talk about that next. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. And welcome back from the break. Here we go. Warming in the pen. Rob, that guy, that guy might be back in 2016. According to Tony Paul of the Detroit News, we're talking about Joaquin Soria. Apparently there's a rumor out on the streets that the Tigers are interested in bringing back the right-handed closer. Uh, I have my thoughts on this, but uh, I'm curious what your initial reaction to that news was. Well, I'm happy that they're targeting a bullpen arm. Uh, but at the same time, you almost wonder if a guy like Soria, you know, someone who has that proven closer tag, um, may cost a little bit too much that the Tigers wouldn't necessarily be able to spend elsewhere to improve the bullpen. Uh, I know that we kind of talked a lot about, you know, how Dave Dombrowski prioritized signing the high-priced closer to, you know, handle the ninth inning and all that, and then really kind of neglected the rest of the bullpen at times. Um, so I'm hopeful that, you know, if they do sign someone like Soria to or you know or another big name to to a deal that they don't uh, stop there I'm not sure why I feel this way but my initial reaction was not a good one and I haven't quite sorted it out yet I, I'll just be honest when when I heard Joaquin Soria I went Ugh, really and I'm as I'm kind of sifting through now why did I think that what was why was that my knee-jerk reaction I, I'm sort of landing on a couple of different things I think starting with uh, I guess his performance in 2014 it wasn't all that great. He he got injured almost immediately after joining the, the club in the first place, and then he was part of that, um, you know, that unfortunate bullpen implosion along with Jabba Chamberlain in the 2014 ALDS. Uh, him coming back in 2015 seems like you know he he was he pitched well, but not like I don't know. I, I don't recall a point in 2015 of, of ever looking at him and thinking, ah, "Wow, lights out!" You know, he's awesome. In fact, there was a stretch there, and I think it was was it June where he was like, he gave up like five or six home runs in a week or something crazy like that. It was a weird stretch. Just didn't seem quite right. Do you, do you recall what I'm? Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a stretch from the tail end of May kind of to the middle of June there. Yeah. Where he did give up like five or six home runs in a, in a really quick stretch. Uh, but other than that, he was really good. You know, I kind of took a look at his overall numbers last night, um, you know, and we can say that, you know, he wasn't necessarily a lights out guy, but while he was here, he was still the best arm in the bullpen that we had. And it really kind of speaks to just how crap the rest of the pen was. Um, That's it. You know, it, de- it really kind of depends on the, the cost of a guy like Soria. I don't necessarily know if he's the same guy that terrorized the rest of the AL Central when he was in a Royals uniform, you know, seven, eight years ago. But I think he's still a really good arm to have. And if the Tigers can get him on the right deal, uh, I would gladly have him back. Yeah, I guess it's all those things, you know, pieced together. It's not that he was a bad pitcher this year and last year. Uh, there was some weirdness. But it, I guess, yeah, I'm at this place where, look, if they're going to if they're gonna make a splashy signing for a, you know, quote-unquote proven closer, then it hit damn well better be someone like Araldus Chapman in order for me to feel, you know, excited about it. Otherwise, I would so much prefer that they stay away from the headliners and just stock that bullpen with as many cheap, 
decent options as they you know as they possibly can that's that's just me though i mean i guess like you said if he's not going to be super expensive and if they're not going to do this at the expense of taking care of the rest of the bullpen yeah great he'd be a good guy to have but do you know who's who's not coming back joe nathan the, the yes. word is out they have declined his option they bought him out and um gosh i'm really surprised by this news aren't you rob totally shocked yeah wow so um i guess there's really not much to say about that except there's a lot of four-letter words that are still left over uh from when joe nathan was pitching for the tigers and i guess outside of that um do you think he will sign somewhere else is he is he done as a pitcher or do you think some of the team will pick him up i almost wonder if he'll kind of do I don't necessarily want to say exactly what Tory Hunter did, but if he signs with the Twins for, you know, even if it's like a season or half a season or something like that, um, kind of as more of like a farewell tour with uh, with them and their fans um, to, you know, pitch for them maybe for another year. You know, maybe he comes back and he does, you know, some good work for them out of the pen. It would be just like the Twins to have Joe Nathan come back throwing like 85 miles an hour and actually be good again. Um, so, uh, it, you know, if he does sign with anyone for 2016 or a year after that, I think it would be the twins. Well, so far, no announcements anyway, from him saying, yeah, I'm done. I'm retiring or anything like that. Um, Torrey Hunter, you know, obviously this year has already kind of made that clear. He's retiring. Um, but yeah, it will be, uh, I'll keep an eye on that one just to see where Jonah, it's always fun to track these kind of, uh, bullpen disasters as they, as they move on. It's been years and I'm still keeping an eye on what Jose Valverde is doing. So good luck joe best of luck really um just don't come back to detroit i mean unless it's for another team and unless you're really bad because yeah uh among those lines then um we have two other uh, news items of players that have opted for free agency well at least one of them two of them hmm i've got them both on my list here is that granky and alex gordon although has gordon actually opted for free agency at this point or is that still well, John Haben of CBS Sports says that he has, um, you know, and it's not exactly like Haben to just say, oh, he's done that when he's expecting him to. Okay. Um, so I, I really haven't seen anyone else reporting it, especially out of the Kansas City markets, but they might still be drunk from their uh, World <laughs> Series parade today because I don't know if you saw the photos, but it looked like everyone in Kansas City was at that parade. Everybody in Kansas City and possibly some people from other surrounding areas as well. Everybody just descended on that. Hey, good for them. They're going to be uh, having to sleep that one off for a little while yet. But yeah, I, I hadn't yet. I guess I missed the Heyman uh, post. I just I thought we were still in discussion stages as far as Alex Gordon. But yeah, Alex Gordon has opted. Uh, sounds like has opted for free agency. Certainly, Zach Grinke has opted for free agency as we suspected that he might. Um, go get him right. Go sign, sign everyone. Sign Just, them all. <laughs> Everybody. All right. Let's 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 start with Grenke. Realistically, he's going to want the moon, right? I mean, he's going to want 10 years and $500 million to start with, right? Well, he already kind of had the moon. You know, he was getting paid. I want to say it was north of $25 million for the next three seasons. Um, so, you know, I, I almost wonder if someone can just tack on a couple more years to that deal. And give him kind of exactly what he wants. I want to say he's already like 32 years old. So I don't think a team's going to give him seven or eight years or anything like that. I think we'll see a deal similar in length to what uh, James Shields signed with the with the Padres last off, last offseason. But obviously for a lot more money. 
But you got to believe in a situation like this that the Dodgers probably have the best shot at getting him, right? I mean, that's the team he was with. I think at this point, him going for the free agency is really just his way of saying, hey, you know, I want a couple more years and a couple more millions. So, I mean, really, isn't that how this works? The Dodgers then turn around and say, fine, we'll extend the contract four or five years, you know, bump up a couple million for you. And then that's that's over and done. I mean, does does any other team really have a, a shot at this? You'd really like to think that, uh, that that they'd be able to do that. Um, I guess the only real question there is whether Grinky wants to go back to the Dodgers. Um, you know, we've heard rumors and things like that that he wasn't necessarily happy with how the clubhouse was in 2014. And I know that you've started that book uh, that we've talked about a few times, The Best Team That Money Can Buy. I don't know if you've read anything into that so far. Um, but, you know, with kind of what seemed like a little bit of a tumultuous environment uh, with the Dodgers in 2014 that, uh, from all accounts, had definitely improved in 2015, it's, you know, it, it's anyone's guess as to whether Grinky just kind of, want, kind of wants to cut bait and get out of town. That's, uh, that's actually a very good point. And, yeah, I'm, I'm probably about uh, maybe halfway through that book now. It's, I think we've gotten through. I've read through the part where the 2014 season has ended and it's starting to move towards the playoffs. There's been a lot of kind of back history already covered in the book about leading up to the 2014 season and the changeover in ownership, uh, you know, from McCourt to the, uh, what is it, the Guggenheim group. Um, and you're right, that that clubhouse is just an absolute effing mess. And it's been described over and over again in this book as basically a collection of superstars who are basically, you know, they're, they're for themselves. They're out for themselves and there is no real team chemistry. Funny thing is, as I was reading that, um, you know, this past week and kind of getting an idea of what, what it's like in the Dodger uh, environment, that culture, I was really actually not surprised that Don Mattingly left. And I am now starting to really think it was less of a firing than it was him saying, no, get me the hell out of here, because it sounds like an awful environment to be in. So very good point. Granky may not. Um, he sounds like kind of an oddball, too. You've, you've got to read this book. You've really got to read this book. Uh-huh. He sounds like... Uh, He's an extremely intelligent, like super intelligent, super high IQ kind of guy. And for that reason, maybe has a bit of a personality quirk. And uh, yeah, so uh, I guess the real point in all of this is, are the Tigers going to go get Zach Grinke? Uh, you know, they might, they might not. It's it's really tough to say right now. Um, you know, the Tigers, you know, if Mr. Illich wants to go after, you know, a big time free agent, he may go after David Price. He may go after a guy like Zach Greinke, who pitched in the AL Central for a number of years. Uh, it's, you know, it, it really is kind of anyone's guess at this point. And we haven't heard any sort of rumors so far, uh, mostly because teams aren't allowed to talk to free agents yet. So I think that, you know, once rumors start flying fast over the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll kind of have a better idea of what the Tigers exact strategy is. Yeah, because we are recording this on Tuesday night. It's November the 3rd, and you'll have to remind me, uh, free agency doesn't officially start until Friday, but when can the team start talking to players? I want to say it's Friday. Okay, so we got a couple of days before all that fun stuff starts happening. Uh, Yeah, fun to see how this one unfolds. If you remember last year, Max Scherzer was the big name on the free agent market, and I think Grinke is one of the big names this year, along with people like David Price and Johnny Cueto. But if you recall, it took Max Scherzer up until... Uh, mid-January, late January, I think, before he finally signed with, with the Nationals. So we'll see it, if, if... What's that? 
it did take him that long, but I think it's going to be a little bit different this year because a lot of the big names that you're seeing, you know, the Prices, the Grinkies of the world, I don't know how many of them are represented by Scott Boris. Mm. Uh, and Boris is notorious for waiting the market out and, you know, waiting until January to get guys to sign. If you remember correctly, uh, Prince Fielder didn't sign till late January. Uh, Max Scherzer didn't sign until then. Um, there are probably a couple other big names that I'm kind of blanking on right now. Um, that's really kind of his M.O., to wait until well after the winter meetings, things like that, kind of try to build up his own market for these guys, get teams bidding against themselves to get his clients the the most money possible. Yeah, it was kind of a, a weird way that that unfolded because I remember watching, you know, Max Scherzer going nowhere, and then all these other teams were snapping up starters left and right, and I thought, geez, he's going to run out of you know potential suitors if he doesn't make a decision here. So we'll see what what Granky does if he ends up getting kind of picked up quick and you know fast and early, or whether he kind of hangs out a while and tries to drive a, a bidding war. Uh, the other name that we just talked about, Alex Gordon, um, sounds like he's going to decline his uh, option on that contract. Uh, that would be a, a real nice pickup, don't you? I mean, I mean that goes without saying, I guess. Uh, the, I'm more curious, though, about what the kind of money he's going to want and whether the Tigers could afford to pick him up for left field. Well, I think the question with Gordon more so about money is whether he takes a hometown discount to stay with the Royals. Um, you know, if it, of all the names we've you know talked about being on the free agent market this year, it seems like Gordon would be the most likely to actually leave money on the table to go back to Kansas City. Um, you know, he's said a number of great things about the organization before. You know, he there was the whole will he, won't he with a player option, which was, you know, even last offseason, well below the money he was going to get on the free agent market. Um, you know, I think that he's going to get probably close to $20 million a year uh, on his contract going forward. He's, a, you know, a few years older than a couple of the other guys on on the market, you know, the Jason Haywards and Justin Uptons of the world. But I think that his game is going to age a little bit better than a couple of those guys too because I think he's a very well-rounded player. You know, he has a good approach at the plate. He takes a lot of walks. He hits for, you know, some power but not a ton. Um, and I think could be one of those guys that will still provide a lot of value, especially, you know, on the defensive side of things um, for several years to come. So it'll be... You know, it would definitely be nice to you know take that five or six WAR per season away from the Royals and stick it directly on the Tigers. Um, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see if if Gordon decides to you know kind of uh, you know stay loyal to the Royals or or what have you. I'm looking at his contract details here. It looks like he's owed or would be getting about close close to 13 million, uh, and that's what he's been about 12 and a half to 13 for the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, if he's going to opt out of that, um, he'd be looking for some kind of a bump from there. But the question, I guess, is then how much of a bump and how much would the Tigers go up to? If he wants to, say, raise that to, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 million a year, is that in the range still where the Tigers would say, yeah, sure, we'll go for it? You'd like to think so. Um, you know, it's tough to say exactly how much they're going to spend on one player, given all the things that they need this offseason. But you'd like to think that spending that kind of money on him is going to be a better value than spending, you know, what's probably going to be north of $20 million a year on a guy like Ioannis Cespedes or Justin Upton. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like you mentioned, from the player defense, um, you know, defensive run saved perspective, and the numbers are nice. I mean, I've hammered this point for a couple of weeks now about how that gap in left field right now uh, is is about a 90 runs created gap value right now. And then they, they need to fill that in some way. And uh, looking at Alex Gordon's career average, uh, he's at 95 runs created. So that would make a real nice fit. Uh, 
you'd love to see them solve that left field problem by going in that direction. So I'm all for just saying, hell with it, sign sign everybody. Get Granky, get Gordon, um, yeah, I'll get Joe Nathan back. But we can let bygones be bygones, right? Uh, Bad? No? Okay. Too far? Too far. It's, uh, you know, it's the off-season, man. I'm bored as hell. So all kinds of crazy ideas that are just going to just materialize on this podcast. And it's... Uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's bail out of this segment while it's still... Uh, safe to do so <laughs> we'll wrap up warming in the pen when we come back from the break uh, we'll go into our high and tight segment talk about a couple of issues but mostly the fact that the kansas city royals are there's still a fluke right yeah they are aren't they we'll talk more about that when we get back three two a fly ball center field this one's deep going back gorgeous at the warning track looking up and it's gone a home run amazing how about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. All right, welcome to our high and tight segment. Let's do a quick scan of the week's headlines, some of the big items in the news. It's difficult in the offseason, Rob, because there's just not a whole lot of baseball news flying, but I did catch a couple of, uh, a couple of articles, and I'm not even sure that they were written in this past week. I just happened to notice them. One... Uh, was written by Alex Skillen at Hardball Times called The Royals are a Sabermetrics team. Real interesting read. Um, and he basically kind of makes the argument that the Kansas City Royals were using advanced analytics and Sabermetrics more so than most teams would think, given who's running the crew in Ned Yost. Um, but I thought it was interesting because what he was saying basically supported what you were talking about in last week's podcast uh, in terms of, look, the Royals went out and, and exploited a market inefficiency in that they went and got a lot of heavy uh, defense-first outfielders uh, that, that could cover a lot of uh, territory in that spacious Kauffman Stadium outfield, and then they went and tailored their pitching staff uh, to that outfield, basically got a lot of pitchers that were high fly ball rate pitchers and basically saying, you don't have to go out and spend you know a billion damn dollars on top-flight starters. You can get some of these cheaper guys, uh, middle-of-the-road guys, if you have the defense behind it, and they look, they went and did it. So turns out, Rob, you were you were one hundred percent correct. Yeah, and you know this is kind of a thing where you know we we talk about Moneyball and the Oakland A's and you know the emphasis they put on drawing walks and things like that. Um, the Kansas City Royals, this year's uh, twenty fifteen Royals team, that is kind of the next Moneyball, if you want to call it that. You know they weren't the the. I don't necessarily know if they were the best team in the majors, although you know their record definitely suggests that they were one of the one of the top teams in baseball. Um, you know, from a pure, st- I guess I'm talking from a pure talent standpoint here. But that was a team that was so good at a few specific things. You know, playing defense and that bullpen and an offense that made contact and put pressure on defenses that it really kind of masked any other flaws that they had. You know, they weren't a great power hitting team. They weren't the best team in baseball at getting on base or anything like that but you know the few things that they did well they did so well that it was you know very tough for teams that have kind of been built and geared towards you know other ways of winning uh it it was really kind of a stark contrast and i think that that um you know that is the reason why they really kind of stormed to a a world series title i'm still not convinced i guess any one uh, explanation and certainly the you know, the, the sports media intelligentsia is, you know, spilling gallons and gallons of ink telling us exactly what the secret to success was for the Kansas City Royals. So far, the only uh, explanation or analysis that I've half agreed with was Grant Brisby, 
which again, this is the point in the podcast, the annual or weekly rather point in which we say, go read Grant Brisby. Just go Google the name and read everything you can find. Um, that's B-R-I-S-B-E-E if you're trying to find him. Um, his explanation for what the Royals did, uh, he kept coming back to the defense and the bullpen and saying that those were the two constants. And yes, they made contact you know, and ran the bases, but really the two you know, surefire things was that bullpen that nobody could get past and a defense that was just, you know, ungodly good. Um, I'm just, I'm still not entirely sold that this is, um, you know, I kind of teased this segment by saying, are they, are they a fluke? And that was kind of the joke in 2014 and 2015 seemed like, holy crap, they're not a fluke at all. Look what they just did. And yeah, I I don't know, man, I'm, I'm looking back and going, I think the first and best, biggest break they got in 2015 was the Tigers just kind of taking a crap all over themselves with all those injuries early on. So they, the Royals really had no competition in 2015. No, they didn't. But at the same time, you got to wonder exactly how many games, the difference, even the Tigers being good would have made. Uh, You know, the Tigers were nine and 10 against Kansas city this season already. They played them relatively tough compared to what a lot of other teams did. Um, so I don't necessarily think that, you know, had the Tigers been good, the Royals would have just kind of folded and been the same old Royals and not made the playoffs. Um, you know, I think that this still was a, definitely a playoff caliber team. You know, they made the playoffs last year. And, you know, whether or not you want to say that that kind of run to the World Series was a little bit fluky, uh, especially based on what they did in the wild card game. Um, you know, I think this is definitely one of the one of the better teams in the American League, even, you know, as much as we kind of as kind of everyone left them off, I guess, before the season. Um, and I think we really kind of overlooked some of the, I don't want to say intangibles, but the things that we've noticed here and that, you know, the, you know, we know the bullpen was good. We knew the defense was good, but I don't think anyone really kind of took into stock how good those two entities were. You know, I think that though those entities and even their offenses ability to make contact being so far and away better than everyone else in baseball, I think that kind of masked some of the other deficiencies they had on, on the roster, particularly uh, the starting rotation. It's just, it's a weird combination. Lowest strikeout rate in the American League, but also lowest walk rate. And so when you come right down to it, how are they getting on base at all? It was strictly by the super high contact rate, but that's kind of bizarre to me because when I look at the team uh, batting average on balls in play, it sits right at about 300. So it's not like they were getting lucky with a lot of baseballs falling in. They just weren't getting unlucky. And that's the kind of thing that I look and go, they're not a power hitting team. They had like the lowest or second lowest, real close to the bottom, uh, isolated power numbers in the American League. This is a team that's going to have to rely on baseballs, you know, going in and landing for base hits, singles and and that kind of thing. Of course, once they get on the base paths, they're they're extremely dangerous with the speed. You know, that whole extra base taken thing. They did a lot of that. I think they, they were the best at it in the American League. But to me, I look at that and think, can you really do that year after year? I mean, can can you get that good in 2016, that lucky of having that many uh, balls in play fall for base hits? Can a bullpen be sustainable? For that many years, certainly, you know, they have their problems with the starting rotation that they masked by never, ever using these guys past the sixth inning if they could help it. Um, I don't know, Rob. It just seems to me like uh, they were definitely a good team this year, but I don't know that they were. (laughs) When you look at their ending record and go 95, they won 95 games and they're, um, you know, really had no competition in the central. I think 
the Tigers finished in last place at, what, 20-some games out of first place? You just have to wonder, if the Tigers had not had injuries up the wazoo, if you had Justin Verlander from the start matched up with David Price and Anibal Sanchez, who's not suffering from a shoulder injury and is actually pitching well, Shane Green not having you know no feeling in his hand and pitching well, Cabrera and Martinez not being injured, living up to their run production potential, I, I really wonder if this season could have ended much like 2014 did, where it comes down to the last day and it's down to like one or two games. And yeah, maybe the Royals still, you know, win the division, but at least it's not people going, whoa, these guys were just an unbeatable forest. Look what they did. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that the margin of victory in the in the division definitely kind of sells the whole, you know, feeling that this was, you know, in, in and just kind of a juggernaut of a team. Um, you know, they did win 95 games. And I thought that they were, you know, a very I think they were a very deserving champion based on how the entire season played out there. You know, they're not the 2011 St. Louis Cardinals who won. What was it like? 84 games or something like that and then stormed their way to a title um this was the royals team that kind of stormed out of the gate very hot you know i remember they matched the tigers really hot start there and the two teams kind of had a nice little showdown i want to say towards the end of may uh when you know it was looking like that might have been you know your your uh alcs preview um uh but with you know i think that they're going to get a lot more credit for the rest of the I guess they'll get more credit for the rest of the division being bad than they will get, you know, kind of blame or skepticism. Because, um, you know, people will say, oh, look, they won the division by 12 games and then they stormed their way to a title. Um, we also got to remember that, you know, this was a team that was down by four runs in the eighth inning of, a, of an, an elimination game in the ALDS, too. And they kind of came back from that. Um, you know, I think it says something that the that this team was you know, kind of relaxed enough, and, you know, I, I don't want to go all feelings ball on this, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, I think it says something that the, this was a team that, you know, was able to kind of stay collected and, you know, battle through some of those adverse moments there, but I think that this was definitely, you know, I, I still kind of come back to thinking that this team was definitely better than a lot of people are give, are going to give them credit for. Uh, you know, they may not have been the best team in the American League, Um you know, I still think that the Toronto Blue Jays with their plus 221 run differential were probably the better team. Um, but I think that the Royals definitely deserve to, you know, call themselves world champions. And I don't think anyone should really try to detract from that. Well, but I'm going to anyway. And probably a lot of it is just sour grapes, you know, and that, that sort of thing. But I, I'm not sold on it. And it's, just, it's precisely that ALDS game that you referred to when the Royals were facing elimination. And in fact, uh, <laughs> they were looking at uh, a three percent chance of even winning that game. So you know, a ninety-seven percent chance of being eliminated. That's it. You're out of the playoffs. You get bounced in the ALDS. So much for your team of destiny. You know, narrative or whatever. And you know, improbably, they managed to string together like what three or four singles in a row, and then an error. And you know, by the time the whole thing was said and done, they'd actually come back and taken the lead. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, though. I mean, if if baseball plays out the way that it's supposed to play out and probably would nine times out of 10, then they, the Royals aren't even in this. They're, they're gone in the ALDS and the Astros advance and you end up with a, well, God, that would have been fun, huh? An Astros and Blue Jays slugfest, two of the top leading AL teams in terms of home runs. That, that would have been fun. Uh, but you know, I think the Royals caught some seriously good luck, uh, in that event. It reminded me of the 1986 New York Mets in Game 6 of that World Series against the Red Sox when they were, I mean, literally one strike away from elimination multiple times. And they did almost the exact same thing. Strung together just an improbable number of two-out base hits. 
uh, and managed to come back and tie in the game and take the lead. And, you know, anything's possible once you crawl out of that hole and have to go to the next game, you know. And so, I don't know. I just, I look and think, look, they're not a bad team. I'm not saying that. They're, they're, they're a good team. And I think they will be good next year because most of that roster is coming back. I'm just not buying the the feelings ball, I guess, that you referred to. Well, I think at the same time, um, you know, you kind of look at it as what World Series champion didn't have some luck along the way. Um, I I keep going back to this, but the 2013 Red Sox, you know, they were down by four runs in the eighth inning of game two of the ALCS. They kind of looked dead to rights there before one ill-advised change-up changed the entire series. Um, You know, you've had other other teams, uh, you know, kind of win, impro- I guess, improbable World Series, if you want to call it that. Um, and it really kind of speaks to the fact that the playoffs are just kind of a crapshoot. Sure. Um, you have, you know, a series of, you have to win 11 games after playing an 162-game schedule in order to call yourselves world champions. And oftentimes, the team with the best record after those 162 games isn't the one that's carrying the trophy at the end of the year. Right. It gets to this business of saying, well, which is the best team in baseball? And that's kind of what's happening now with Kansas City. Well, clearly they were the best team in baseball. And they go, well, not, not really, because, um, you know, they, they they performed well in the short series, I guess, against the Blue Jays, against the Astros. But when you go back to the regular season records, they were losers against both of those teams. So, you know, you say, OK, fine, make it a longer series. Let's see who really lasts. And I don't think the Royals make it out of there again, you know nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be somebody else. Um, So it's one of those weird things that you go, okay, you can point to the reasons why it worked out. They got a lot of contact that fell for base hits. They have a great bullpen. You know, that's never going to probably ever change. Um, You know, great defense. You can, you can see the reasons why it happened. Here's why I'm kind of amped up about this though, because the second article, uh, this one was written by, uh, Bruce Schoenfield of the New York Times uh, called How Ned Yost Made the Kansas City Royals Unstoppable. And this is basically kind of an extended um, jab at sabermetrics and advanced analytics because he goes for most of the article talking about how bad of a of a uh, tactician or a strategist Ned Yost is. He recounts several very, very stupid decisions made by Ned Yost, uh, not only this year, but, but last year. Uh, one of those coming against the Detroit Tigers, in fact when he did not bring Greg Holland into the game in the ninth inning when the game was tied, because that's just, that's not Ned Yost, right? He won't ever deviate from that plan. And uh, that was the game that Ian Kinsler walked off with a with a home run. Uh, in fact, that game is immortalized in our uh, warming in the pen segment, I think is the, that Dickerson called. It's part of our transition bumper music. Anyway, uh, so yeah, he basically kind of after showing all these specific examples where Ned Yost is really kind of an idiot when it comes to strategy, yet somehow he he made the Kansas City Royals unstoppable. And at, at this point, Schoenfield just sort of unloads pallet after pallet of narrative. And it's all about, you know, how he believes in his guys. And Ned Yost even says in the article, yeah, you know, when I get a gut feeling, I'm just never wrong about it. And I'm like, this is such bullshit. And the only reason we're having this conversation is because he got his team to the World Series and they won. So you're telling me at the end of this string of you know improbable outcomes and good luck here and there, oh, God, we have to deal with this? This is the end result? You have to deal with people looking back and saying, see, this was a team of destiny. They had it all together from the beginning, and it's this thing and that thing, and Ned Yost really, uh, Rob, kill me. Between this and Dusty Baker being hired by the Nationals, I think this is going to be an unbearable offseason when it comes to bad 
media takes. Mm, I forgot about Dusty Baker being hired. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, let's. I'm now. I'm just mad at everything. So I'm gonna go ahead and um, pass the torch of anger over to you, and uh, let you do a little ranting and raving about what happened with uh, Grantland this week and being oh. shut down. Yeah, so for the two people who don't know yet, Grantland was shut down by ESPN. Um, you know, it, people have written various things about it over the last couple of days, and you know, people have said, "Yo, Grantland didn't make money or anything." Bullshit. Okay, so maybe Grantland didn't necessarily make a profit, but at the same time, it was backed by ESPN, one of the you know multi-billion-dollar sports industries we have today and backed by Disney, which might be the biggest company on the planet at this point. So, um, and I think it, it really just pisses me off because it's not necessarily just ESPN shutting down the one good thing it had going on the internet right now um, and still paying, you know, idiots like Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith to just yell and rant and rave on TV all day. And oh, it's terrible. Um, but it really just kind of goes back to the dumbing down of the internet that we've seen. Um, you know, you, we've seen various websites and things, you know, resort to all this, you know, short form and, and we're, we're guilty of it too. It's something that SB nation is really kind of pushing, um, you know, all the kind of short form and the, you know, real clicky headlines and hot takes and, you know, lists and cat gifts and all this other stuff (laughs) that, you know, dominates the internet these days. And it really kind of takes away from, you know, some of the excellent reporting and analysis and things that have made, you know, some of these sites like Grantland and, you know, SB Nation, I think, successful for the most part. Um, you know, I think the difference with, you know, a site like ours um, is that we're not, you know, most of us aren't necessarily doing this as our job. You know, this is a hobby for a lot of us, myself included. So, you know, all of the effort that I put in is, you know, kind of on the side. Whereas, you know, you have, you know, a Grantland being laid off for what basically is, you know, kind of a pot shot at Bill Simmons leaving ESPN. And you have, you know, a number of talented writers. You have Jonah Carey and Ben Lindbergh and Michael Bauman, who, you know, are phenomenal writers. All of them are out of jobs now in some fashion. Um, you know, all of them, uh, you know, are also, you know, from the limited interactions I've had with them, great people to boot. And it's really, you know, tough to see them, uh, you know, just kind of thrown by the wayside because of this. Uh, I know at SB Nation, they've had, you know, their own, you know, I guess cuts and firings over the over the last couple of years. Um, you know, a number of different uh, and talented writers from them were cut loose. Uh, you know, I want to say a year or two ago, um, including one who you know you have you know admired from afar, uh, David Roth. Um, it was one that I just I don't understand why in the world you would let someone like that go. And it just you know it it just kills me that we're that we're you know putting all of this emphasis on all this crap instead of you know the the things that are great and i know that you know the crap is what sells and all that but it's just it, it's just frustrating and it really pisses me off well i mean not to kind of i'm just gonna say you're starting to sound like the old man again 
yelling at the cloud. It's it, but it's true. It's absolutely true. The the what these damn kids today and their gifs and vines and you know memes and everything else. It just it really has turned into a culture that doesn't have the attention span for more than you know five paragraphs of text, which is something that I know you and I have to keep in mind as we post articles for Bless You Boys. You know, I'm always having to be conscious of like, uh, am I getting near that one thousand word count? Because if I am, I'm probably going to lose a bunch of people. Even though I think what I'm writing is halfway decent, you know, and I guess from my vantage point, what I do, you know, for the site is I try to do some analytics here and there, but mostly I'm uh, writing smart ass humor. And that's very much because of what we're talking about, because I know if I want to engage the reader long enough to finish all 1000, you know, 200 words, I got to tell fart jokes. That's just all there is to it. Or I got to put a goofy picture of Bartolo Colon, you know, trying to take an at bat. That's, that's just the way it is. You know, I, I, the only, I guess, consolation that I have here is that, some of those writers that you mentioned, like, you know, Jonah Carey, um, also have the patience and the talent to write full length books. And if you recall, I think we talked about Jonah Carey's book about the Tampa Bay Rays and Joe Madden. I think that one's called The Extra 2%. And that one's on my list to read after um, The Best Team Money Can Buy and then Big Data Baseball about the Pittsburgh Pirates. But uh, that's, that's you hope these guys all are obviously they are they're talented enough to they'll land on their feet and will continue to be able to you know make money on full length books that they're writing and that's guys like you and me that have the patience will sit down and read 300 pages worth thank god SB Nation still has Grant Brisby <laughs> I know that, that's all I will say I on wood man it still kills me that we don't have David Roth writing for us well, and that's, I guess we're going to leave that right there uh, and not be miserable. All right, that'll wrap up our high and tight segment. When we get back from the break, we're going into the mob scene at home, take some listener questions, and uh, hey, the off season. What's, what's the worst that could happen? Well, we'll tell you when we come back from the break. Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk. Number three, rounding third, exchanges the low ten with Dave Clark, and into the mob scene at home. And we're back, going into the mob scene at home, taking our, our, our questions from our listeners, which we are receiving via Twitter. You can reach us on Twitter at Bless You Boys or at BYB Rob or at Hookslide BYB. You can uh, send those to us via email. Um, we are at BYBTigers at gmail.com. All right, Rob, we've got a couple questions this week that are, it looks like some are baseball related and as usual, some are just not even related to anything except this goofiness. Uh, ah, yeah, we'll start with, um, start with this one. Alex Alvarado at AR Alvarado 13 wants to know what's the off season move that you really, really, really don't want to happen, but probably will. Well, we have one coming up that I really, really don't want to happen. Um, but, uh, as far as kind of a more nuanced take, I would say, you know, signing a big time reliever, you know, in the mold of Joaquin Soria and then kind of neglecting the rest of the bullpen or what, you know, we could affectionately call the Dave Dombrowski model of building a bullpen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the Tigers definitely need more than one arm there. You know, even if you're signing someone, I don't necessarily want to say off the scrap heap, but, you know, someone that's a little bit less heralded, I think that, you know, that's the type of thing that we're hoping that, you know, Al Avila and his new sabermetric bent will go for, uh, you know, signing. I know a guy that a lot of people have mentioned is Sean Kelly, 
Um, you know, he's not necessarily the proven closer, quote unquote, but he's had, you know, had great strikeout to walk ratio and things like that. And, um, you know, you hope that the Tigers will spring for a couple of those guys and kind of worry about the closer thing later instead of, you know, going for, you know, the big name and then letting the chips fall where they may. Yeah, that's absolutely no way to build a bullpen uh, the way that Dombrowski did it, spending all your money on a quote-unquote proven closer and that not having any kind of a backup plan for when that inevitably fails. Uh, I'm with you in saying I really hope they don't go that route. God knows they should have learned their lesson by now, and please tell me it's not we're going to have Joaquin Soria be the closer and count on Bruce Rondone to be the setup man again. Please, we know that doesn't work. Uh, for me, the offseason move um, that I really didn't want to happen, it probably will. Obviously, it was uh, Brad Ausmus, but that's already been done and taken care of, and he's coming back, and there's not a damn thing I can do about it. So that's already um, down the toilet. Uh, I guess after that, uh, I'm really kind of still beating the drum about you got to do something about left field. And it's not an off-season move. It's really a non-move that I think they're not going to, going to. I, I, there's too many negatives now. Basically, I'm saying I really don't want to see them stick with Tyler Collins and then maybe sign kind of a no-name half-contributor and say, there, there's your platoon for left. We'll be fine. I have a feeling that's exactly what they're going to do. I have a feeling they're not going to spend a whole lot of money on left field. Alavila hasn't said a darn thing about it that I'm aware of. He's talked about starting, pitching, and bullpen, and I think that's kind of where, where it's going to go. All right, next question. David Novachevsky at D Novachevsky 2. That is, good Lord, D N O W A C Z E W S K I 2. David, really? You had to put a 2? There was another guy named D Novachevsky on Twitter that you had to stick a 2 on the end of that. No kidding. All right. He asks or requests match Big Lebowski characters to current Tigers. The podcast is great, by the way. Thanks, David. Uh, Shit. All right. What do you got, Rob? See, I've got a few here. Um, I think the dude is obviously Daniel Norris. Uh, you know, he lives in a van in the <laughs> off season. He's really kind of a relaxed guy. Nice. He's not necessarily as lazy as the dude, but, you know, it's tough to find a professional baseball player that would be quite that lazy. Uh, so I think Daniel Norris is the clear-cut answer there. Um, Walter, who, you know, got in a lot of, you know, skirmishes throughout the movie there, has to be James McCann for his uh, kind of... <laughs> police cop uh, mentality okay. behind the plate there um you know hopefully mccann's not being quite as aggressive to opposing teams and uh, you know his own teammates as as walter was uh in the bowling alley there but i think that that's kind of an apt comparison so far and then you know donnie has struggled with a little bit more but i i have to say that he's uh andrew romine hmm. uh, partly because of you know kind of the connection with don kelly uh, but at the same time you know, Donnie was kind of the guy throughout the movie that, you know, everyone just told him what to do and he didn't necessarily get to think for himself. And, you know, with Romine being, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, catch-all utility infielder there, he kind of fits the same mold as well. Um, you know, I think uh, hopefully Romine has a, a lot better fate than Donnie did towards the end of that movie. Um, oh, but, uh, <laughs> so, but uh, you know, I think that's a pretty solid start for us. If you haven't seen the movie, Donnie ends up in a coffee can i think he ends up cremated so and that's actually a funny uh little here you go here's a bonus side fact for you because i'm a huge fan of the cohen brothers and love their body of work and it's uh, it's actually a, a, a thing it's an actual easter egg that they put in their in a certain stretch of movies i think starting with miller's crossing and then running through fargo uh where the character played by steve buscemi in each of those mo movies 
ends up being dismembered just a little bit more in each successive movie. So like in Fargo, he ends up in a wood chipper. And then by the time you get to the Big Lebowski, he's actually just ashes. So it's kind of a funny thing. Um, the list that I came up with, it was not quite that good. Uh, and this whole thing started, I think, because last we talked about uh, which tigers should go as what Halloween uh, costumes, what costumes they should wear, and I said that Jesus Quintana is is V-Mart, obviously. The guys look almost identical. John Turturro and V-Mart are like kissing cousins. It's crazy. So that's, that's V-Mart, but to kind of expand from there, I would have to say that the big Lebowski himself, that's Alavila. I mean, just from visual comparison alone, right? Uh, as far as Donnie, I went with Ian Kinsler. I don't know why. It is, for some reason, in my head, if I I could I could envision in the dugout like Justin Verlander and uh, you know James McCann having a conversation and saying like, you know do you know the famous line from Lennon and then it would be Kinsler piping going I am the walrus I am the walrus I am the walrus shut up Ian I mean that's just how I saw it playing out in my head so I don't I don't know that was my the, the only one that like really made sense to me though and I was kind of ticked because I went ask me this question two years ago the stranger Sam Elliott's character that's Jim Leland. I mean, right? How could it not be? It's got to be. They look identical. Absolutely. You could absolutely see Leland come out through the dugout with a, you know, cigarette hanging off his mouth going, the dude abides. You know, it would be that. So, but yeah, Leland's not there. So anyway, that was a fun diversion, wasn't it? Andrew Boggs at MCMTX on Twitter says, Cespedes, Fister, Puig, Gordon, Zobrist, Jordan Zimmerman. In other words, free agents or trades that would make sense. Um, yes, I think that there are a lot of different ways to fix this roster. Um, you know, I kind of went through my whole offseason plan last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that really anything you do to improve this team um, without grossly overpaying for someone or just neglecting a certain area altogether would be a, a solid move for the Tigers. Uh, I don't necessarily know that they need to go out and get, you know, kind of the premier free agents at each position, although that would be nice. Um, but I think that they they just kind of need to address all areas, I guess. So I think that, you know, a number of different moves need to be made. And I think that that would make the most sense for them. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It's you got to fix a couple different areas, but you got to not spend a lot of money. And there are ways to do that. I would be fine with Doug Fister. I've said before, I think um, I think he could benefit from being back in a, a, a defensive heavy uh, environment that Detroit is and that they weren't when he was originally with the team. Uh, Alex Gordon, we've just talked about. Absolutely, I would be in favor of going out and getting him if he can be had for not a ton of money. Um, so, yeah, some of those are ideas that I would like. It's, I mean, we're kind of at the point now where I think um, you, I think they would have to try really hard to make this team worse. So there are very, you could almost better have a shorter answer by saying, you know, who do you not want to see them sign, I guess. So, um uh, yeah, we'll see. Paul Sporer at Sporer on Twitter says, would you want Alfredo Simon back as... A- no, I'm not even going to finish that question. What the... No. All right. Would you want Alfredo Simon back as a relief pitcher only? He could sit in the mid-90s. His 2013 as a relief pitcher was solid. Yeah, no. Mm. I don't think there's really any way you want him back there. Um you know, at first I, I had the same reaction you did when I originally read his tweet there. Uh, you know, he provided a link over to Baseball Reference to, you know, take a look at that 2013 season when he was coming out of the bullpen. But even then, you know, it was okay. It wasn't great. Um, you know, and with, you know, all the bad we've seen from Simon over the years, it's really tough to, you know, kind of 
to to really sell you on you know okay he's got a mid 90s fastball yeah so does you know so do 30 or 40 other relievers in the game that could all you know i think all have a little bit more upside there uh you know simon doesn't necessarily strike out a lot of guys and i think you really kind of want that out of reliever especially if he's pumping mid 90s gas uh and i think you could do a lot better than that you know probably for a little bit a little bit cheaper uh, than Simon would, or at least, you know, have a little bit more hope that he'll, you know, he'll light it up for 30 or 40 innings a year. Yeah, and the thing is, really, his selling point is that maybe the mid-90s fastball, and I'll go one better, because I think he was throwing even high 90s during the season. He was touching 96, 97 at points. Uh, the point is, his command sucks, so it, I don't care how fast he's throwing. He cannot hit his spots. Uh, so, no, absolutely, I do not want another... <laughs> big hard throwing reliever who can't freaking throw a strike coming in late in games and putting the winning runs on base. Absolutely not. No, I've seen enough of Alfredo Simon. Let's just be done with that. And finally, Jennifer Cozy at Viva Tigres uh, says, did you spend the first days of the off season? A blubbering B sulking about the Royals C fantasizing about free agents you want signed. Well, I actually spent the last couple of days leading up to the off season doing a fair amount of drinking, thanks to the <laughs> following weekend and festivities with that. So, I guess I'd say you know I spent the first couple of days of this off season nursing that hangover, as well as nursing my baseball hangover, uh, and really just trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do for the next four or five months. You know what's funny to me in looking at her question here. Um, is I'm realizing that as she lays it out, option A was blubbering, B was sulking about the Royals, C was fantasizing about free agents. She's describing this damn podcast. So uh, apparently that's um, exactly how we're spending the offseason, doing a lot of uh, blubbering, sulking about the Royals, and fantasizing about free agents. Uh, all It has to be all three, right? I mean, here we are, no baseball, and uh, it sucks. And there's really nothing you can do except... Uh, we, we talked in previous podcasts, I guess. We're going to be doing some off-season reading, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, Rob, you absolutely have to get into this book, because by next week or the week after, I want to start talking about this whole Dodgers situation and what's going on in that. Uh, as described in the book, the best team money can buy. There's some really interesting stuff in there, especially I thought about um, things like what does a bench coach actually do, and maybe some information about what does a pitching coach actually do, so... Get on that, man, and then we'll have something to talk about. I mean, uh, I have basketball on TV right now, so I might as well get on it right away. <laughs> That's a sad, sad night right there. All right. Thanks again to all of our listeners for submitting these questions. Uh, you know how to contact us, but uh, we definitely appreciate the input. It makes it so much easier to fill out this segment of the show. Otherwise, we're just, I don't know, today we were talking about maybe having a rap battle, and that would have been disastrous. So thanks for all the questions and helping us uh, make this this uh, segment palatable, I guess. You That's... can't encourage them because if you say that we're going to have a rap battle, then they're going to actually want that. And no one really wants that. They all it's think they awful. want it. They all think they want it until it actually happens. And then it's just like really awkward for like 20 minutes. And yeah, you'll say things about my mom and it's just going to get ugly. And no. Anyway, that will do it for our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment. When we get back from the break, we'll be talking with Meg Rowley, staff writer for LookoutLanding.com, and talking about this question, who doesn't want women involved with sports? We'll find out when we get back from the break. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. 
Kurt Ball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh. And Victor got tossed. And as we head into the home stretch, we're here for the seventh inning Kvetch, that part of the show where we just kind of, kind of, I don't know, go off the tracks, do whatever the heck we want to do. Today, we are going to be tackling that question, who doesn't want women involved with sports? And we're joined today by Meg Rowley, staff writer for our sister site, LookoutLanding.com. That's SB Nation's Seattle Mariners blog. You can find Meg on Twitter at Meg Rowler. Um, love to get her to explain what that handle means. Meg has also been featured on Fox Sports' Just a Bit Outside. And she's a friend of our own poet emeritus, Thomas Bunting. And so any friend of Thomas's is a friend of ours. Meg, how are the how are the Mariners looking for next year? Oh, it's going to be great, you guys. We're going to the World Series. Jerry yeah. DePoto said that stats are facts, so I'm very optimistic. It's a really stark change for the organization. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen because the Tigers are going to the World Series and last time i checked they won't let two american league teams go so well at least we'll get, finally get that championship series that we've been waiting for uh who, who was waiting for that rob was that you that was i may for? have predicted that this year yeah <laughs> that's right that's Tom, Thomas and i may have drunkenly hoped for that in march for a little while so <laughs> i'm gonna just things, uh, yeah things look good for uh, I don't know, like a day or so. That's we, right. we were we were good for a week. Yeah, Dustin Ackley hit a home run on opening day. I I thought we were going to the World Series. Didn't work out that way. Yeah, well, I'm just going to step right out of that because, as as I like to bring up on this show, I am the one that predicted that the Chicago White Sox would be the uh, American League representatives in the World Series. So I'm pretty much just done making uh, predictions for the rest of ever. And uh, if you guys want to go ahead and predict a Mariners, Tigers, ALCS, more power to the both of you. I will not complain. But uh, anyway... We had invited you on the show, Meg, and we thought, you know, hey, it'd be fun to get Meg on the show and talk about the Mariners and, you know, be lighthearted and drink some beers and have fun. And then I thought, ah, screw that. Let's go ahead and write, go right to like the super hot, takey, hot topic, incendiary stuff and talk about sexism in sports. So I, I really apologize that this is how we're uh, introducing you to the show. I really hope that you'll come back on the yeah. show in the future and and talk about other things. I know you've, you've had some thoughts that you'd put out um in an article recently about bandwagon fans. I, in particular, am very interested in that subject. Maybe something we could discuss on uh, a future episode. Um, but yeah, there's there's this kind of more pressing issue, this whole thing about being a, a woman sports fan and from your perspective, a sports writer. And it kind of goes just up the ladder. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit. Let's start with, I mean, just one of those hot topic news items that's been going around for the last couple of months uh, with Jessica Mendoza joining the ESPN booth as a color commentator for Sunday Night Baseball. She replaced uh, Kurt Schilling uh, in that role because he was being a dick, and that's what he does. So they got Jess Mendoza instead, and uh, she she was the color commentator for a couple of those games, most specifically, most recently, the wild card game. Um, and boy, the fallout from that was, um, yeah. But what what's the word that you would use to describe that? I, I'll say, if I want to be optimistic, that it was actually more... Um divided than I anticipated. I think that um, the the true trolls on Twitter were sort of appropriately um, exercised by 
those those in the know about her and her background and who actually watched and listened to the broadcast and cared to sort of take her commentary at face value rather than um, caring that it was being delivered in a feminine voice, quite literally. Um, but I, I was just, I think the part of it that I found the most disheartening was that you know, her, her performance that night wasn't perfect. I don't think anyone's first time in the booth ever goes perfectly, especially the first time in a booth for a playoff game like that. But, you know, considering the quality of some of the broadcasters we saw um, prior to that on Sunday Night Baseball and then subsequent to that in the rest of the playoffs, um, mm-hmm. the fact that her gender seemed to be sort of a gating factor for so many people was really discouraging because I guarantee you that we would have had a more pleasant postseason experience if it had been her instead of Harold Reynolds in the booth for seemingly endless series on Fox Sports. So <laughs> that's, 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 that's low hanging fruit. Come on. You can't pick on Harold Reynolds. I mean, yeah, the, the guy's yeah. a mainstay, right? <laughs> Rob, Fair. did you happen to catch any of that, of the game with Jess Mendoza? I did. And I actually saw several of the games that she called. Uh, I remember yeah. when, her first game was actually, I don't know, I want to say like a month before that, when she called some random game. It was like the Diamondbacks and someone else. I think it was on Monday night that they had yeah. originally started her on. And, you know, just listening to her, to her then, um, I was, you know, very, I don't want to say pleasantly surprised because I had, you know, I'd heard other, you know, her call other things before. But I was just very happy that, she, you know, she was good. Like it wasn't... Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of at a loss for words and how to exactly to describe it. But you know, I guess I, I guess I was surprised that you know we actually had a good announcer on ESPN, if anything else, because um, they've had you know just so many other you know schmucks in there over the last few years with John Cruck and uh, and Kurt Schilling, like you've mentioned on Sunday Night Baseball, and then to see her you know get to step into that role um, has been really nice to see. And I you know so the wild card game itself wasn't necessarily a surprise for me having heard her before and i think by that point i was even just kind of able to enjoy the game and it just felt a lot more normal at that point for me okay i'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit maybe set a bit broader of a context um or let meg set a little bit broader of a context for us because i know meg as you and i chatted a little bit privately offline a couple weeks back one of the things that we discussed when it comes to this issue of you know genderism or sexism in sports uh you, you had mentioned specifically kind of a you know, an inexcusable ignorance among um, male sports fans that this sort of thing goes on. I mean, I'm certain that I and my partner here, Rob, have no problem with women sports fans, women being in the booth, women managers, anything like that. And yet uh, I have to claim a lot of ignorance about kind of what goes on. Um, you know, I, I last time I checked, last time I doctor checked, I'm not a woman. Uh, so I don't have that experience of, you know, being a woman sports writer, commentator, you know, on Twitter. Um, can you kind of share with us a little bit about your experience in that um, in that environment, especially as it pertains to writing articles for Lookout Landing or commenting on Twitter, that kind of thing? Sure. I mean, I think that, um, well, the first thing I'll say is that I don't want to make my own experience sort of universally applicable. I think there's a really wide range in terms of what women um, face when they participate in public forums, whether it's about sports or anything else. And certainly um, there are as many approaches to how to deal with negative uh, feedback from um, fellow Twitter users as there are um, experiences on Twitter. So I don't want to sort of claim mine as a universal one. But I think the, the thing that's the most disheartening is that so often when when I have a negative experience of a male sports fan, whether, you know, he's a reader of Lookout Landing or 
just some guy who somehow finds me. I, I don't know how I don't know how these people find me as, as part of this. They just come out of the woodwork. But I think that what I um, what I'm often so unsettled by is that their objection doesn't seem to be that they have a different opinion of baseball than I do and they wish that my opinion was theirs. I think we we've all as writers had that experience where mm-hmm. fans um, just get pissed that you don't agree with them that, you know, I don't know, their third starter isn't better than, you know, David Price and often he's just not. Their issue isn't that I have a different baseball opinion, it's that I have a baseball opinion at all and that I am somehow infringing on you know, a space that they had previously seen to be exclusively theirs, and now there are all these women running around who want to watch baseball, talk baseball, and make jokes about it, some of which are actually funny and many of which are terrible puns. But, you know, it's it's a, a feeling that they don't want me in the conversation at all, regardless of what I'm going to say. We might have identical baseball views, and the fact that I'm there presenting one is the problem for a lot of them. And that's that's a hard thing to deal with because it's hard, it's hard to know how you counteract that. How do you persuade someone that you are um, entitled to be a participant in a dialogue about a thing that you really love and spend a lot of time thinking about and sort of grappling with? And I think that's where it gets really tricky because you just don't know what to do apart from expose those people um, to the rest of Twitter as sort of, you know, what what not to do, how not to engage and how you know, hopefully you're going to sort of raise awareness for people who probably, like you said, are perfectly comfortable with women participating in the dialogue around sports, but don't necessarily know what a lot of women who are in that sort of arena deal with on a daily basis. And I'm pretty lucky. And the fact that I consider myself lucky that I haven't gotten some of the um, vitriol that has been directed at women who are you know, infinitely more prominent in this industry than I am. Sure, sure. The fact that I consider myself lucky that I haven't been <laughs> called names that would make my father like cringe and want to kill people. That's, that's not a great spot for the dialogue around sports to be in. Like that's, that's a bad, that's a bad look for everyone. So um, I think that part of what, what I try to do is sort of pick spots where I can engage. And it's not necessarily the person who's hurling insults at me that I'm trying to engage. It's it's other sports writers saying, look, this is the crap that we deal with every day. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it's, it's hard to kind of sort through all the different uh, you know variables at play there. And I, as I'm listening to you describe the experience, and Rob, I'd like to get your feedback on this too, because it kind of reminds me of just kind of the way that generally speaking, nasty human beings act. Period. Uh, whenever there's kind of a change uh, shift, you know, in, in the way things are done. Uh, and you kind of wonder if take take gender out of the equation for a minute, if the same sort of thing maybe took place when when sabermetrics first kind of came on the scene. Uh, only there you don't have the you know, if you disagree with somebody because they're bringing all the fancy math into it, you don't have the ability to lob the hand grenade, take the easy out of saying, well, you're a woman. That's that's why we disagree. You don't get to. You just don't. You have to kind of go to the other level of insult, which is, okay, well, then you must be a nerd uh, that lives in your mom's basement, you know, and likes Harry Potter. It just it seems to me that that's just it seems to be the M.O. of nasty people in general, that if they can't counter the argument intelligently, they have to go for the, the character assassination, which isn't it funny that they would consider being a woman character assassination to begin with. But that's an easy out. Right. I mean, 
uh, I'm interested in your thoughts too on this. On this, Rob, is there maybe a parallel there with, you know, the, the change order that took place with just the introduction of saber metrics, and is there a parallel there with what we're seeing, with you know more and more women becoming involved in in uh, prominent places in sports? I think there is a little bit of a parallel there, but at the same time, we've seen so many of these issues, um, you know, kind of gender and sexism issues throughout human history, really. Um, and so I think it's a little bit tough to compare that to kind of a relatively recent, uh, you know, a relatively recent phenomenon and the advent of sabermetrics and advanced statistics and everything like that. Something that has come through so quickly in the game here. Um, as far as kind of what Meg has experienced there, I, I would think that the, the kind of the anonymity that the internet provides is definitely a big reason why. Hmm. You get a lot of that. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Meg, but do you have you ever had someone come up to you at a baseball game and you know ask you why you're there because you're a woman or anything like that? No, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. The anonymity definitely um, provides a lot of um, comfort to those folks and certainly provides them courage to behave in a way that they wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I think that when you're a female sports fan, there's, there is that sort of type of guy that is going to request that you sort of present your bona fides as a fan um, <laughs> before they'll take you seriously. I mean, this is a, a bit hyperbolic on my part, but the number of times that I have said at a party or a, a ball game, yeah, I really like baseball, and then, you know, had some dude say, oh, really? Well, what was the blood type of the third reliever in the 76 World Series? I'm like, Fuck, I don't know, and neither do you, and how on earth does that matter to you right now? So I, I think you're right that it certainly takes on a different complexion when it goes online because there is this safety in anonymity, and Twitter does not do a terrific job of policing that harassment. And so I think that they rightly um, notice that they have a lot of latitude to go after people and be nasty. Um, I mean, I think that part of it is just that they are garbage people. I mean, let's not underestimate that they would probably be nasty to both of you too. But they are a lot quicker to jump to gender as a means of insult. Um, and it's, you know, I've had, I've had guys give me 10 tweet long unsolicited feedback about what my picture looks like on Twitter. I remember uh, that. That was, that, was, that was a lot. I it had was, strong feelings about it, Meg. Okay. I'm sorry. It, it could have been 15 <laughs> tweets, but I just, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I changed it and that really threw a lot of people off. I changed my picture. Rob was very upset. He didn't know who I was anymore, but you know, he managed to not go at me for 10 tweets that my, my picture looked like someone who wasn't lively or could talk about baseball. So I was confused for like a good two minutes. All right. I'm sorry. Yep. And then, and then, uh, and then you figured it out like normal humans do. So that's what, one of the many things that differentiates you from the the Twitter trolls, Rob. (laughs) But see, at the same time, I, I actually like felt bad that I had said something that day. And I remember that there were a few of us, you know, a few of, the, uh, of other people, Nick Stellini from, I think he writes for Pinstripe Alley and, you know, 12 other sites on the internet. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple of us um, brought attention to it, and I almost felt bad at that point because then you had some of these other people saying different things and going much nastier than us just saying, whoa, you changed your picture, something like that. Um, and I guess my question with that is even just like something as what I thought was relatively innocent and just, you know, someone like one of us saying something like that, does that tend to bring more negative attention to anything that you, anything that you say or you write on the internet as well? 
don't know that I don't know that it necessarily does. I mean, I I like to think that the the group of people who sort of sit in you know that Venn diagram of our followers is maybe not comprised of monsters, and so hopefully when they see you know writers that they like from different sites interacting, they can see it for what it is, which is camaraderie and you know writers wanting to interact with each other and joke around on Twitter. But um, I think it is a good reminder that those forums are always public and they are often being observed and sometimes the reactions are unpredictable. And so, um, you know, it's certainly been uh, a lesson for me as I have had a bit broader of a following after joining Lookout to just be conscious of what I'm putting out there, which hasn't reduced the puns at all, but has made me a little more (laughs) careful about sort of how I um, present myself because not that I think that women really do anything to invite that behavior but I think we we can all think of instances where we can count on a guy being nasty based on what you're going to say which isn't to say that I ever censor myself but I think I'm I try to be thoughtful because there's only so much brain damage you can endure in one day because the pajama people have decided to pay attention to you so (laughs) the pajama people I like that and yet in the face of this as we were discussing uh, you know in the chat room uh, some weeks ago uh, really, the the approach of just ignore it and it goes away is not really a, a legitimate. Um, it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't. Now, I will say that there are a lot of opinions, many of which are conflicting on this question, and I know a lot of women who um, write about sports who have higher profiles than I do, and their approach is to just ignore it. They don't look at their mentions. Um, Part of that is that they are better established, and so the network that can come from interacting with people on Twitter is slightly less important to them, um, and they just get worse and more frequent harassment. So I think it's a survival mechanism more than anything else. But ignoring it does not does not make it better. You know, people say don't read the comments. Well, that's fine, but like when the comments find you and you're just sitting there, it's harder to just turn a blind eye to that when people are saying things that are really hurtful and nasty. I mean, it it makes you feel like crap and like you don't want to participate in the dialogue around a thing you like a lot, which is a bummer because, you know, I've had a lot of really good things for me as a writer come as a result of being engaged with people on Twitter. I mean, that's why I was sort of found by the Lookout Landing guys. That's how, um, you know, I had opportunities to write for Just a Bit Outside. So ignoring that wholesale is is not great advice because it can really stunt your ability to sort of build an audience and a readership and try to advance to sort of broader forums where you might actually, you know, be able to make a run at doing this full time. So it's a, it's a hard thing to balance because you have to stay sane. And some of these folks are not joking around, right? They're not just being nasty. You know, people get very serious and scary threats, but, um, you know, you kind of, have to decide in any given moment, do I have an hour of my life to devote to yelling at this guy because he's decided that my hairstyle does not please him? Yeah, and it's, it's hard to know how to even respond to that. I mean, obviously, from my perspective, coming as a male writer, I you know don't deal with, with sexism, obviously. But yet at the same time, I'm very much a big proponent of don't read the comments. Just, yeah. just don't. I mean, that's... Uh, 
you know, it, it seems to be a, a, a safe maxim across the board for anybody putting anything out there for public consumption because there's always trolls. And, you, yeah, you can engage with them on Twitter. Like you mentioned, Twitter, they can find you. They can just send them, you know, mentions right at you. And believe me, I've exercised my right to block and mute and all that, you know, kind of thing. Um, because, like you said, who's got an hour to dick around with these people? And you, you're never supposed to feed the trolls. But I mean, I'm hearing what you're saying and kind of scratching my head and going, then how the hell do you deal with it? Because, again, you can engage with somebody like that for an hour, but you're probably not changing his mind. Right. So. No, I mean, I'm a big fan of muting and blocking. Um, I'm a big fan of reporting when things get nasty. Um, I don't do it very often because, you know, I think there are we need to be careful to not treat all of that communication the same because there are sort of levels and there are women who have had genuine threats against their safety. And so I don't want to put everything in the same bucket because it's not all identical, right? It's not all um, hurtful, but it is, it's not great. Right. So I think muting and blocking is good. I believe in public shaming. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's, there's nothing that shuts shuts that stuff down more than I mean I hate to say it but than when the sort of outraged um writing uh crew comes a calling to that guy and says what the hell are you doing like how is this remotely appropriate um so I I think that's useful not only because it helps to illustrate to other writers that like yeah this shit happens a lot but also it's a it's a much more effective way of sort of tamping down that behavior so that you at least don't have to deal with that guy again Rob uh, believes in public shaming too. That's why I spend a lot of my week crying. So thanks, Rob. Thanks for always being. It'd be friend. all seven days if I could swing it. <laughs> <laughs> but who has the time? I know. I know. <laughs> One of the other issues that was in the news, uh, maybe a month or two ago, towards the end of the season, was what I've termed selfie gate. And I'm sure you guys both recall the incident that took place. Uh, it was an Arizona Diamondbacks game late in the season, kind of a meaningless game. And, you know, as a Mariners fan, Meg, and as Tigers fans, we certainly understand what meaningless games late in September are all about. Uh, but in this particular case, the announcers were, ter- uh, oddly enough, they were doing a T-Mobile spot um, and send us your picture and all that good, happy, crappy. And then they happened to catch this group of sorority sisters in the stands who were engaged in a whole hell of a lot of selfie taking Enough that uh, the the announcers had a good, what, two, three, four minutes to just continually go back to that shot and kind of laugh and, oh, look at this at the 15th shot, and here I am with Machuro and blah, 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 blah. And uh, it was what was interesting to me, and I'd like to get both of your perspectives on this, is that I saw two distinct um, paths being taken, I guess, with, with the response to that. There was seemed to be like one group that was saying, wow, this is really about genderism. It's about people in, in the wrong generation, kind of, all oh, those kids and their damn phones, you know, get out of, get off my yard with your selfies. And then there was kind of another group that was saying, wow, that's really sexist because you're only saying this because that, you know, that's a group of girls out there. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, that's interesting. Two different ways to look at the same question. Um, there really isn't like a pointed question I have for either of you on that. Just here, let's, uh, let's, let's eat this one. Brad, do you want to go first? I've talked about that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, as when I first saw it, um, actually the first time I watched it, I didn't even have the sound on. I think I was watching it at work and I just thought it was really funny watching all these girls doing all these, you know, selfie motions and everything uh, with no context involved as far as what they were saying. Um, but then I heard the announcers talking about it and I was really just kind of 
appalled and ashamed at what they what they were saying there. Um, and I think there was a certain amount of old man yells at cloud going on with that. Um, but it definitely did feel like the kind of thing that they wouldn't necessarily say if there were a group of guys um, doing that. You know, maybe not that particular thing. If anything, the guys might have gotten a little bit more shame um, for that. But I think that that's kind of rooted in the same type of double standard, I guess, that we have in that, um, you know, in that, you know, they... These announcers just, I think that the part that bugged me the most was that they kept going back to it repeatedly and over and over and over. You know, had they said, you know, like, oh, look at them, you know, get off your phones, that type of thing, and then let it go after 15 seconds, I don't think we would have heard a peep about this. Um, but, you know, to have them go back after it and go, you know, keep going over and over and over and have it be over a T-Mobile selfie spot, no less, um, I think just brought way too much negative uh, I don't even want to say negative attention to it because um, I thought that, you know, the attention that got was warranted. Um, but it was really just unfortunate that it had to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think my first thought was, like, what are you what are you trying to accomplish as broadcasters here? Because that game, I don't, wasn't it between the Diamondbacks and the Rockies? Like, it could not have been, a, it didn't even have spoiler potential for anyone. It was so far outside the realm of mattering it was just like another day of completely meaningless baseball. Um, and on those days, you want people to come to the ballpark. You want them to engage. I think that there was certainly a strong gender component there. I doubt that they would have lingered on them quite as long as they would have um, if they hadn't been a, you know, a bunch of blonde young women from a sorority. I, I cringed the whole time. Like these these young women were obviously in college. They were identified as being in a sorority, but they were called girls throughout the entire broadcast, which I thought was a little bit um, off-putting on the part of the broadcaster. And mostly, you know, that whole segment took place as they were coming back from an innings break. So the pitcher is on the mound warming up. I think that it lasted through, I don't know, maybe one at bat. And more than that, it's like, gives a shit how these young women decide to engage with baseball. There are plenty of young men who go to ballparks, drink beer, and do not engage in the game for any portion of it, right? That's not an unusual experience, and it doesn't matter. That doesn't make them bad people or bad fans. It might make them obnoxious, but, you know, it doesn't make them sort of not entitled to be in the ballpark, and that was what it really felt like to me, that these guys were sitting there in the booth passing judgment on these women saying you don't have a right to be here because you're not engaging in the game in the way that we want to and apart from all of the like silly PR and marketing reasons why that's tone deaf to a younger generation of fans and and to a market of fans that is dealing with a team that is really bad it we never asked those questions of sort of how um authentic is your fandom of the people who are already in the room, right? We assume often that young men who go to baseball games are good, legitimate fans, and we don't ask questions about how good their fandom is, but we do ask those questions of people who have historically been less interested in the game or have participated less in the game. And I think it really halts progress of being a more inclusive league to say, oh, we know how to be a good fan. It's not this, right? I would have had a lot more sympathy for it if in that 10 seconds they had said, wow, I really hope they put their phones down so they don't get hit by a foul ball, hmm. and then <laughs> moved away from it. But it was clear that it, this was not like concern for them. 
this was shaming these women for behaving in a particular way. And I don't, I don't think you get anything out of that apart from eventually affording this sorority the opportunity to take the highest of high roads and ask the Fox and the Diamondbacks donate money to domestic violence rather than give them, you know, more tickets to shitty Diamondbacks games. <laughs> so I, I just, it didn't have to go in the direction that it did, and they took it there. Um, and a lot of folks seemed uncomfortable with the idea that this was a matter of gender, but the camera is almost always a proxy for, you know, the guys in the booth checking out women at baseball games. Like, how many uncomfortable lingering shots do you get in almost every broadcast of, you know, a perky young woman at the ballpark? That happens every broadcast. So don't tell me that this isn't about gender. Like, come on. See, now, if you guys are both going to take that approach, then it's I, that leaves it to me to be the cranky old man in the conversation. I mean, that's just the way it is. I have to be the devil's advocate. And I know I'm only, like, maybe a decade older than the two of you, so I don't feel like there's, like, a huge gender – I mean, not gender, but generational kind of overlap there. But, I mean, my reaction to it – and I fully admit – I am the cranky old fan. Every game that I go to, and it has nothing to do with you know men, women, children. It doesn't matter. Every game I go to, I'm surrounded by people that I just wish weren't there, because you know <laughs> you're, you're you're either on your phone or you're getting up and down to use the bathroom every half inning, or you've come back with your 18th hot dog and we haven't even gotten past the warm ups. You know, it's like just sit down and watch the damn game, or at least go do this you know somewhere else where it's not blocking my view through most of the game. And th- so that was honestly that was my reaction when I saw it. I kind of went, oh jeez really what's the point you know why would you go to a game and spend that much time on on a cell phone but and again like i said it to me it has nothing to do with my reaction has nothing to do with what gender you are it's it did feel to me a lot more like a generational thing which is kind of scary for me because i'm not that old damn it i am not nearly old enough to be you know the 60 year old guy in the booth going you know that kind of thing i mean i think there's something to that right and I think that if that had been the point they wanted to make, they could have very easily looked at this group of young women and then found a group of dudes who were all on their phones and then, and then, and then, and then. And that narrative and sort of being engaged with where you are is an interesting one. Like, there's a good debate to be had about that. Um, But their decision to focus solely on this group of young women, I think, took away that as the main sort of um, point of their sort of disdain. And the other thing is, it's not like any of these young women were getting up between at bats. Like, let's target the real monsters who are not raised right, <laughs> who decide to go to the bathroom or get another beer when you have a batter in the middle of his freaking at bat. There are real monsters out there. Find those people, Diamondback announcers. It's not that hard. Absolutely right. If you have to use the bathroom and you're in the middle of an at-bat, I don't care what inning, who's pitching, what team's batting, you sit there and you proudly piss your pants like a good American and take care of it later because that's how we, that, we fought in wars to protect our right to have that take place. I absolutely 100% agree. Uh, we, before we wrap things up, I want to take things in a slightly uh, more positive direction. Rob and I were talking before the uh, before the show started about Justine Segal, who's been hired by the Oakland Athletics Organization uh, to work on their uh, in their instructional league. Um, we also were talking about some of the uh, God. I forgot to remember what her name was. It's Melissa Mayu, right? who's now uh, working her way through uh, the system. And we were, wanted to talk a little bit about what the future holds uh, in terms of, do you think 
well, it's not really so much will there ever be a female player in the majors because I think that is coming at some point and, and, and uh, coaches and managers and so forth. Maybe it's less a question of will it happen, but when do you think it will happen? Are we looking at 20 years, 30 years? Will you see it in your lifetime? I hope so. It would, I, I will cry when that happens and I will probably buy every piece of memorabilia that they put out associated with that person. Um, you know, I think baseball is in a really, I think it's an enviable position where there are a lot of ways where you can have sort of a co-ed athletic experience and that might be a realistic option. Um, I think the thing that was so cool to see from the young A's players who were dealing with Justine was that they seemed to really respond well to her. There was a lot of sort of the the young guys, a lot of their young prospects who seemed to really um, take to her and sort of take her instruction seriously, uh, which I found very encouraging because you never know sort of how a bunch of young 18 to 20-year-old guys are going to respond to something that new um, in an environment that is so high stakes for them. So I thought that was really encouraging. I mean, I think it's going to depend a lot on how serious Major League Baseball decides to take it because they have the institutional might to mandate um, better hiring practices for women um, and for people of color across the league. They have the ability to make this stuff less voluntary. Um, It's going to be a matter of how seriously they take it and I think in the case of Melissa Maya, like it's encouraging that she is working her way up in the French leagues. I think it's probably going to come from an international player when we see a woman in the majors because you don't have what happens in the States where, you know, little girls get sort of pushed into softball at a very early age and little boys get to keep playing little league, although that is changing here also. Um, I mean, I think it, what's really going to make it work is if there is a cohort of young women who come up sort of around the same time and who can try to make it in the majors. Because as we all know, most prospects fail, right? Like most prospects, regardless of position, gender, whatever, don't make it to the majors because it's really hard to play baseball. (laughs) And so I think that it's going to be important for there to be more than one woman in that position so that when you know, a couple of them fail, and most of them probably will because most prospects do. It's not sort of an hmm. indictment of the whole enterprise. It's just like, this is what happens with prospects, you guys. It's hard to play baseball. A lot of you won't make it. Some of you will because you play for terrible organizations, but like a lot of you are going to fail because that's how prospects work. So I think it can happen. I hope it will happen in my lifetime. I have like a dream of taking a daughter of mine to a ballpark and having her see a woman playing baseball, it will probably mean a lot more to me than it will to her. And I will probably cry a lot about it and she will be embarrassed by her dumb mom. But um, I, I hope that happens. I'll be optimistic. Let's be optimistic today and say it will happen in my lifetime. That would be really cool. It would almost seem, Rob, to be a necessity because if you think back to the experience with Jessica Mendoza in the booth and the fallout from that and that wonderful human being called Mike Bell, the Atlanta DJ who tweeted what he did uh his his complaint wrapped in all the barbed wire that it was was basically what do you have to tell us as a softball player about 95 mile an hour baseballs so rob obviously he was making a very very strong argument for getting women involved in the game right (laughs) absolutely yeah i mean you know if you're gonna make the argument that women haven't uh you know haven't played the game we just got to get them in the game so that uh 
so that they can actually, you know, talk about it as intelligently as the established baseball minds want them to. Mike Bell is a champion of women's rights, is what we're basically <laughs> saying, right? I, oh, oh, freaking guy, oh, man! Can't you know you're in? You know you're on rough ground when a, a National Football League team comes out and says they're embarrassed by you and would prefer that you not be engaged <laughs> with their sport anymore. So props to the Falcons for doing the right thing, but you need to reconsider your life goals, guys. Ooh, that was such a bad look. Rob, when we talk about the possibility of um, potentially seeing a woman taking over as a, a coach or a manager, um, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. I mean, let's let's play the prediction game because we like to do this on the podcast, our, you know, our baseless guesswork that never, ever, ever comes true. Uh, but when, it, in fact, it does happen, who do you think will be that first team? Um, you got to think that the A's would be a good, uh, kind of a good bet for that as long as Billy Bean isn't charged. He seems to really kind of enjoy bucking a lot of the trends that the rest of Major League Baseball has set. Um, you know, as far as other established regimes right now, it's tough to say. Um, you know, maybe someone, I, I, I tend to think towards more, some of the more innovative organizations in baseball, the Astros, the Cubs, things like, uh, you know, teams like that that are, pushing the envelope and judging, you know, things at face value and people by their merits, not, you know, what they've done before or done for the game or things like that. Um, so I guess if I were predicting, I would say it'd be the A's. But, you know, as you said, we've been beyond wrong for everything so far. But uh, like I said, I just I hope it happens sooner rather than later. All right, and I think with that, we will wrap up this conversation. Meg, I really, really appreciate you joining us for this. Uh, like I said, I, I certainly hope you'll come back uh, for a future show, and maybe we can discuss something a little more um, lighthearted and, uh, you know, that that sort of thing. I would love to. I will warn you, it'll probably involve Kyle Seeger. So That's people. right, you and your Seeger thing. Well, all right. Mm-hmm. All right, I mean, we've got our own little quirks and, and whatnot here. So, hey, we talked. We said nice things about Kyle Seeger once before. Once you did, you did. Just that, that one time. I mean, said. it inv- it involved trashing Jared Weaver, which is you know a big time pastime of ours. Yeah. But it finally got Thomas on on Team Seeger once uh, once that incident took place. Finally, was on board. Oh, old Dream Weaver. You know, not a dream anymore. It's it's very easy to unite people around the cause of hating Weaver, I think. So it's, yeah, I think we can all kind of carry that banner together and be united as one. And pretty soon here we're going to be singing songs and holding hands, and it's, <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, so anyway, would you tell our, our listeners, Meg, where they can find you online? Yes, uh, I am on Twitter at Meg Growler, which is not me, Growler. Um, many people think my last name is Rowler as a result of that, but it's M-E-G-R-O-W-L-E-R. My last name is Rowley. Some people call me Growler as a nickname because I like beer. I don't know. It's in my name. So Meg Rowler, you can find my writing on Lookout Landing. I occasionally uh, contribute to Just a Bit Outside and start seeing some of my stuff at Baseball Prospectus. So check it out. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Absolutely go and do that. Uh, there was that piece. Well, well, we'll talk about this the next time you, you come through town about the um, – baseball fandom and the uh you know bandwagoning and how that's really okay that's a subject near and dear to my heart too but i love the piece that you wrote there i think there was a line in there about um is that the one where you no oh rats and i'm gonna forget there was a the line that you had in that article or another one about uh randy johnson unraveling the molecular bonds of a bird and that was that one <laughs> yeah that's good stuff yeah. so definitely listeners get out there read meg's stuff visit her on twitter just don't be a dick 
or I'll send Rob after you. <laughs> we'll call it good for that. And that is just about going to do it for another episode of the Voice of the Turtle podcast. Rob, are, are we going to be back next week? Uh, why wouldn't we be? Because there's no baseball and stuff. Well, there's no baseball now. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess oh. we'll be back. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back. Just pray that the Tigers do something between this week and next week, or it's going to be a it's going to be a long show of. I don't know. We'll, we'll swap brownie recipes or something. Anyhow, folks, we are only half of the conversation. You are the other half. Make sure to leave your comments at the website on the post where this podcast is embedded. You'll find that at blessyouboys.com. You can find me on Twitter at hookslidebyb. You can find Rob at bybrob. And please, please find us out there. Baseball's done for the year, and we are like 31 flavors of board. Send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com. And on behalf of Robert Jackie and lost wandering baseball fans everywhere, this is Hookslide saying you better unpack those winter sweaters because there's no way this 70 degree November weather is going to last. And we will see you next time on The Voice of the Turtles. <laughs>